The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, June 10th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. It's good to see all of you this morning as you get settled. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Stick your finger in the middle of the Bible if you need to. You'll find yourself in Psalm, and I will direct you from there in just a moment. But if you were with us last week, you may remember that we are going to spend at least four weeks, maybe more, but I know at least four weeks, uh, this summer journeying through the book of Psalms. And last week we started by looking at the very first Psalm, Psalm 1, and we saw how the opening Psalm, the, the gateway into the entire collection of Psalms, provided us this tremendous portrait of a joyful life. It gave us this picture of a happy, truly joyful, blessed one of God. And I couldn't get the picture the psalmist gave us out of my mind all week while I was preparing for us this morning. In verse 3 of Psalm 1, we get this image. A joyful one is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in all that he does he prospers and we talked a bit about this well-rooted steady resilient fruitful happy joyful blessed one in god And this week, as I kept running that picture over in my mind, as I was trying to get ready to move on, I I couldn't get rid of the image. And as I was thinking about the image, I've been wondering, what if God in his kindness towards us and for his glory in this city were to do something akin to cultivating a a forest of such people, a, a forest of joy, for his glory and the good of the city of Richmond? What if in the generations to come, if if God continues to be patient and give us that time, what if in the generations to come, we became a people known for our joy in God? I mean, what if the talk of enjoying God and enjoying His grace wasn't just something we wore around on a t-shirt, but what if we became a people known for a deep and exceeding joy? Joy in Him and joy in His grace. What if together we began to pray, we, we began to plead with God that He would cultivate such a legacy of joy in this city, that his name would be honored, that our lives would be overflowing in joy, and there would be tremendous good done in the lives of those around us. As I thought about that and even began to pray towards that end, I began to realize that if that's going to be a reality, we're going to have to be a people whose gospel roots go deep into the living waters of God's grace, deep enough to be able to endure the inevitable seasons of spiritual dryness. We talked about it briefly last week when we looked at this picture, but this joy and this prosperity and this resilience, it's not predicated upon avoiding times of dryness. It's not predicated on avoiding all things that bring discomfort and sorrow, but this joy, this exceeding joy comes from roots that have gone down deep into the gospel of God's grace that enable hearts and lives to sustain, and not just sustain, but even bear fruit through the seasons of such dryness and sorrow. And so as I began to think about this week, I began to think about what psalms would help us to best understand what it might look like to be such well-rooted people 
going through the inevitable seasons of spiritual dryness. Because here's the thing, those seasons and those times, they're absolutely indiscriminate of how old you are, where you come from, how long you've been following Christ, how much money you have. Sorrow, spiritual dryness is no respecter of person. It's an inevitability in life in a fallen world. So what does it look like to be well-rooted in the midst of those seasons? And that's when I began to think about Psalms 42 and 43. If you've got your Bibles, turn there to Psalms 42 and 43. This morning, we're going to take our time to to read these two psalms together and we're going to ask God to to stir our hope in Him. And, And as He does, we're going to ask Him to sink the roots of our hearts deeper and deeper and deeper into the living waters of His grace. We're going to read Psalms 42 and 43 together as one psalm. Historically, this is how they were presented. You can notice even as you look at Psalm 42, there's a heading on top of it. Who wrote it? How it's to be sung or presented in the gathering of God's people? And yet in Psalm 43, it doesn't have one. And as we read these two psalms together, I want you to hear that Psalms 42 and 43 together as one unit present three different psalms. And each psalm, each section, has the same three components. In fact, there's a refrain that's going to be repeated at the end of each of those three distinct units. It's the exact same in both psalms, which is why most scholars and Jewish historians put them together as one. And so this morning, we're going to read them together as one, and then we're going to look at those units. So if you've got your Bible, Psalm 42, let me get there. The first thing we notice as we begin to read it is that at the top where it tells us who wrote it and how it's to be presented before God's people, you see this weird word that we don't often talk about. It says that Psalms 42 and now 43 are a mass kill. Most commentators think that is a term, a musical term, that's meant to denote how it's supposed to be sung, how it's supposed to be presented. Now, however that gets interpreted, everybody understands that the word, the Hebrew word that maskil comes from, means to make one wise or instruct. And so as we begin to read Psalm 42 and 43, we have to read it through the lens of the intentionality of the writers that this song is meant to instruct our minds in how we think and our hearts in how we feel. And so as we read it and we look, at a well-rooted life going through seasons of spiritual dryness, God intends for the way we think about Him, our life, and those seasons, and the way our hearts feels to be instructed. Psalm 42, let's read them all together, starting in verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. 
Go to Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and the unjust, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Two psalms, one unit. Three separate components inside each one. It starts, and you may have heard it over and over again, you find in both pieces this refrain of honesty coming from the psalmist. Reflecting the reality of David's inner and external turmoil. There's, a, there's an honesty present in the psalm, but not just that. There's an honesty that goes hand in hand with a remembrance. A memory of something. Not just the present experience being talked about, but something of past grace in God's faithfulness that's been tasted. And as the tension begins to build between what the David is experiencing and what David is remembering, the psalmist helps us to see how David responds to it. So that's how we're going to look at them. I want you to see those three pieces through both of these psalms and what they have to do in God's grace to instruct how we think and how our hearts feel. The first thing that you see, that you hear, you had to have heard it as you heard the psalm read, is that David is in a bad way. And the first thing that we have to see as we approach this psalm, as those who want to be well-rooted, whose leaves won't wither in times of dryness, is that it does no good for your joy. It does no good for your well-being for you to pretend about these things with God. It does no good for your joy. It does no good for your well-being for you to pretend about these things with God. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now, if you grew up in the church, you got to get the image that you're familiar with out of your head. The image that would accompany this verse by itself on t-shirts and office posters and coffee mugs is one of a sweet deer standing by a babbling brook drinking water in the morning. That's not the image at all. This is the image of a deer that's literally breaths away from dying. So dehydrated, you can see its ribs, its hair is mange, it needs water or it's going to die. This is a desperate animal. I thirst, my soul, it thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? You see, David has been cut off from the corporate worship of God with his people in the temple. We don't know the exact circumstance surrounding the writing of this psalm by the sons of Korah, talking about a time in David's life. But what we do know is that he's not able to get back to the temple to worship God as God had appointed. He's cut off. And no one talks about this better than Spurgeon. If you're a fan of the Psalms and you have not yet purchased for yourself the treasury of David, Spurgeon's thoughts and writings on the Psalms, do yourself a favor and go buy it. It's fantastic. Spurgeon, in trying to, to communicate some of this to his congregation in London at the time, he said, David has been debarred from public worship, and he's heartsick. His own ease he did not seek, his own honor he did not covet, but the enjoyment of communion with God was of an urgent need of his soul. He viewed it not merely as the sweetest of all luxuries, but as an absolute necessity, like water to a deer. He's feeling in his heart and in his soul this distancing of God's face and of God's presence. And he's recognizing something in his soul that knows it needs it, but right now he doesn't feel like he can get to him. He's distant from God. 
And the internal sense of distance that he is feeling is only being compounded, the psalmist helps us see, by the taunts that he is receiving from the people that are around him. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So internally, he's feeling distancing from God's face. And on the outside, he's getting the taunts of his enemy. And the taunts are only compounding how he's feeling on the inside. Again, each thing is kind of repeated in a different way through different sections. In verse 10, he says, As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These taunts are going deep because they're pushing the button of David's sense of distance from God. But whatever the situation is, even to those that are around David and near David in his presence, can sense that something of abandonment seems to be going on, which is why they're taunting him and speaking to him the way they are. And so what it looks like on the outside, even to those around David, is exactly how it feels on the inside in his heart. Listen to how he explains, how, how honest he is with the Lord about the situation that his soul is in. My soul is cast down, the psalmist says in verse 6. It's cast down within me. That literally means to be doubled over on itself. If you've ever felt a kind of physical pain that has left you literally doubled over on your own body because it hurts so bad, the distancing and dryness that David of feeling of heart and soul is like that. He's doubled over. I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten? He's feeling a, a literal forgottenness of God from God. Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So not only is he doubled over in spirit, is his, is his soul doubled over in sorrow and in, and in dryness, and he feels like God may be forgetting him, there's a mourning. If you've ever felt the loss of something so significant and close to you and felt the grieving power of mourning in your heart, that's how he's feeling about this distancing that he senses in his heart from God. There's a mourning to it. Verse 7, all of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So I'm the verge of drowning in this. Psalm 43, verse 2, he says, For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? So his heart has become a bit disoriented and even divided in sense, but in a good way. There, there's a glimmer of something here. David knows something to be true about God and he's not yet let go of it. You are the one in whom I take refuge. It's your breakers and it's your waves. He's not yet let go of who God is in his bigness and in his sovereignty. But at the same time, he's right here going, why have you forgotten me and have rejected me and abandoned me? I, I know this to be true, but this is how I feel. This is what I'm going through. And his heart is divided in itself on that. And so he says, my tears, what I've cried, the tears I've shed, they've been my food day and night. Now for some of you, the name Martin Lloyd-Jones will sound familiar. Lloyd-Jones is arguably one of the greatest Christian minds and preachers of the 20th century. He was in London, and before he became a pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor. He's called the good doctor, but he's a doctor because he was a medical doctor. And Lloyd-Jones prepared a series of messages one summer for his church in London on Psalms 42 and 43. They were so effective in the grace of God for his church, they became his best-selling book of all time. It's called Spiritual Depression. And in his book on spiritual depression, writing about this particular verse right here, Martin Lloyd-Jones makes an observation that at his time, only someone who had his medical background could actually make. It's so easy in the church for us to, to, to believe in our minds and speak with our mouths that we believe in a, a holistic creation and wiring that God has made us one being of soul and body and spirit. But when we think about our own lives, we tend to diverse, d divorce those things. I'm, I'm a physical person. I'm an emotional person. I'm a spiritual person. I'll deal with this over here and this over here. But Lloyd-Jones made an observation back in the 40s about what David was saying here that's so helpful in understanding the honesty of what he's dealing with. Lloyd-Jones says, first of all, you have to hear that David is saying, I'm not eating. 
the only things I eat are my tears. His sorrow has led him to losing his appetite. You ever felt that way? But notice something else. He's not sleeping. He doesn't just say tears have been my food all day, but my tears have been my food day and night. I'm weeping all night. Boy, Jones says you don't weep all night when you're asleep. So he's not eating. He's not sleeping. And the physical impact of not eating and not sleeping is compounding the internal sorrow that he's feeling, of feeling abandoned and distracted and, and distanced and separated from God. And it's like the cycle is going in and over itself, over and over. And you can get the images of breakers and waves. And that's where he is. And another commentator points out when you take these sections that repeat in Psalm 42 and 43, you actually begin to see, as he said, as the stanzas develop, the screws on David's soul get tighter. In the first two verses of Psalm 42, it's like David can't get to God. I mean, I've been separated from him, from worship of him. I can't get to him. Then towards the end of Psalm 42 and verse 9, it's as though God has now forgotten him. Now he knows literally God has not forgotten him, but that's how it feels. And then when you get to Psalm 43 verse 2, God's abandoned me. He's rejected me. I can't get to him. He's forgotten me. He's rejected me. Nine times throughout both Psalms, you hear, why? 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 Here's what I love about Psalm 42 and 43 and why I picked these and thinking about what it looks like to be a well-rooted, joyful one and what it looks like to endure and to go through seasons of such dryness. Psalm 42 and 43 don't tell us why. We don't know exactly why David is in this situation feeling the way that he's feeling in soul. There are other psalms that speak to different things that can lead us to these moments in life. There are other psalms that talk about afflictions in our body that leave us feeling abandoned or rejected. There are other psalms that talk about sin hidden and covered up in our heart that can lead us to a place of feeling distance and dryness from God. But you don't get that here. You just get the inevitable reality that at some point, in some way, in life, in a fallen world, a well-rooted tree, to use that image, is going to have to endure the dry seasons. It's just the way that it is. And I love that it doesn't get into the specifics because sometimes there just aren't going to be specifics you can put your finger on. We know that there are some people just in wiring that are more susceptible to seasons of sorrow, seasons of dryness, seasons of melancholy. Spurgeon himself would have said, that's him. He wrote over and over and over again how he would despair of his own joy and at times his own life on this earth because it felt like the clouds of despair and darkness would simply never leave. He said, for those like me, all of the birds of our world are owls and ravens. It was just something that he had to deal with throughout his life. We know that different circumstances can bring this on. Illness or, or loss. But the psalm doesn't tell us. We don't hear the psalmist say, here's why he feels this way. What we do hear is the outpouring of an honest heart. You see, in the seasons of spiritual dryness and sorrow, when you begin to feel like David sounds here, the first thing we have to understand is that what God wants is our honesty, not our religion. God wants our honesty, not a pretend version of ourselves. God doesn't want you to tell him what you think he wants to hear going through this. God wants your honesty. I love that Radiohead song, Fake Plastic Trees, because it always makes me think about the church sometimes. We get this tendency to think that we have to be this certain fake plastic person when we go through circumstances like this before God or else we've done something wrong or are doing something wrong. No, in these moments, in these seasons, in these times, what he wants is your honesty. And sometimes the only thing you can even begin to do in these moments is to tell him how much you miss him. To tell him how bad it hurts. 
to tell him how dry, how distant it feels. David did not hold back. God does not intend for us to hold back with him. If you're a parent, you you know intrinsically what this feeling feels like. I am far from a perfect father, but I try the best that I can each day to learn more of what it means to try to reflect the kind of love and security and safety to my kids because what I want more than anything for them when they go through various seasons and difficulties and times of life is to be honest with me. To believe I'm, I'm big enough to take it and loving enough to absorb it for their good. I mean, how much more so is our Heavenly Father big enough to take it, loving enough towards you to be able to absorb it? What He wants is your honesty. It does no good for your joy whatsoever for you to pretend with Him. And I want to at least note something about this. David's downcast. He's sorrowful. He's spiritually dry. He's honest with God about it. But what we'll see in the way the psalmist goes and what the psalmist tells us is that this is not the honesty of catharsis. Sometimes we like to get things off our chest because in the moment we think it just makes us feel better. Do you know the feeling? Woe to whoever is there when you get it off your chest. Because all you're concerned about is just getting it off your chest. But guess what? It doesn't go anywhere. The more we go after the relief of catharsis, the more we ultimately end up dwelling in that same discouragement and sorrow because we've got to find someone else to tell about it so we can feel better about it again. Because when it creeps back up again, we've got to tell someone else, get it off our chest. And That's not the honesty that God is after. It's not the honesty that David is talking about. There's an honesty of heart, an honesty of soul, a pouring out, but it goes with something. There's a hand-in-hand reality with this honesty here, and the psalmist helps us see it so well. As David pours out his heart to the Lord, at the same time, he is turning his mind from the sorrow that he's experiencing to the grace of God that he's tasted in the past. There's something going with the honesty, and it's an intentional activity on his part. It's a shift you see in all three sections going through the Psalms. Look at Psalm 42, verse 4. These things I remember. What's the next word? What's it say? These things I remember as. Right? That's the next word, right? As. Not these things I remember a month or two after. Not these things I remembered later on. These things I remembered as I pour out my soul. As I'm honest with God. As I'm being with him who I am. Transparent and open with God. Pouring out my soul. As I'm doing that, I'm remembering something. And the first thing we see that David remembers is that soul-quenching presence of God in the times of corporate worship. I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. But there's a whole sermon in itself in verse 4. A whole sermon about the importance of times like this, of corporate worship, when God's people gather together as God appointed to worship Him in spirit and in truth. There is something happening here that's supernatural for your joy and for your growth. It's a whole other series in itself. So I'll just say this this morning. Don't take times like this lightly. There is something beyond your intellectual comprehension happening in here by the Spirit of God for your joy. For His glory, but for your joy. David is not remembering the, the nostalgia of certain gatherings. David is remembering the presence of God that he has tasted as he's gathered with God's people and worshiped God as God appointed for him to do. Remember, he's cut off from the temple. He can't go to the festivals. He can't go to the big sacrifices. He can't go with God's people. And he's remembering how he's gathered with them in the past. How real the quenching presence of God was in those times. 
Don't take mornings like this lightly. But David goes on. There's something else he's remembering. Verse 8. David is remembering the deeply satisfying grace of God. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. David is remembering God's loving kindness. He's remembering God's covenant faithfulness. He's remembering God's unmerited grace. David is remembering the steadfast love of God that has been evident not only in his life, but in the life of God's people for generations. He's remembering God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham. He's remembering God's faithfulness in his delivering of his people out of slavery. He's remembering God's faithfulness of leading them in the wilderness of the promised land. He's remembering God's faithfulness for generations and in his own life. He's remembering the satisfying and quenching grace of God. And then the writers of these psalms do something artistic. They take in this line in verse 8 that his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And they take this remembering of God's steadfast love. And in Psalm 43, in their section, they turn it into a prayer. And listen to it. Verse 3, Psalm 43. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. God's steadfast love in the past as he delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. The great exodus led them into the wilderness where God would continue to love them graciously by guiding them through the day in the wilderness by a cloud, guiding them at night in the darkness by a pillar of fire. His steadfast love not leaving them to themselves but guiding them. The psalmist is expressing this remembrance in this prayer. I'm in the dark I need you to lead me. I'm not physically in the dark. My soul is in the dark. I need the light of your truth to guide my soul. I I know who you are, but I know how I feel. I need the light of your truth to lead me. My soul, it needs to see what's true. Let them bring me. Let the light of your truth bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. The dwelling was the temple. And in the holy of holies of the temple was the dwelling place of God. And there in the holy of holies was the altar where the blood of the sacrifice that was made for atonement would be sprinkled. This prayer as the remembrance of God's steadfast love is given over to song and given over to prayer is remembering that the light of God's love and steadfast faithfulness is leading David now to the place of forgiveness. The light of God takes him to the place of atonement. Friends, on this side of the cross, it is the light of the gospel that leads our hearts to Christ because it's there It's in Him that our hearts are seen for what they really are. And God's steadfast love and faithfulness is most clearly on display. His soul is in the dark and He cries out for God to lead His soul in this darkness by His truth. And the light of God's truth leads Him to the place of atonement and forgiveness. And it's there at the altar of God. God, my exceeding joy, verse 4 says, that I will praise you with the lyre. Oh God, my God. You see, remembering God's steadfast love, remembering God's covenant faithfulness, this song is reflecting, has led his heart to remember that what he wants more than anything is for God to be his exceeding joy. And that was what the first two verses of Psalm 42 were all about. That is what his heart is desperate for and panting for. More than anything else in the world, what the psalmist is reflecting that David wanted was for God to again be his exceeding joy. And he knew that nothing else was going to be able to do it. Yes, he prayed to be delivered from his enemies. Yes, it's okay to pray for circumstantial change in life. But guess what? Wanting to get out of a certain circumstance or wanting a certain circumstance to be changed isn't spiritual in itself. Who doesn't want to get out of bad circumstances? Yes, we should pray for those things, and we do pray for those things. But what the psalmist is showing us here is that underneath all of that, what the heart of the well-rooted wanted more than anything was for God to again be his exceeding joy. 
to be delighted and to be overflowing in satisfaction and nothing less than who God is and who he continues to be for him. And, and if this really is a song that's been written for the instruction of our minds and the feeling and the instruction of our hearts, then it's written to help get us to the end where we come to the place of realizing that it is God who is to be our exceeding joy. But as we think and the way we think about who he is and who we are and how we relate to the circumstances in life, it's supposed to be changed by his grace progressively to the point where our hearts want nothing less than for God to be our exceeding joy. It's just like last week where we said the fundamental issue in all of Christianity, it's not rules, it's not regulations, it's not how well with your own tenacity you can do this and that. The fundamental distinguishing issue of Christianity is one of delight. What is it that your heart delights in? C.S. Lewis said, we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It's the appointed consummation. So as he has been remembering the steadfast love of God, the writers of Psalm 42 and 43 turn that into a prayer that ends in God again being his exceeding joy and delight in praising God for who he is and his continued steadfast love, not just to David, but to his people. See, in times of spiritual dryness, these well-rooted trees, those whose leaves don't wither in the dryness, Psalms 42 and 43 help us to see that, one, we don't mask or, or minimize these seasons with God. We don't pretend that it's something other than what it is. We pour ourselves out in honesty to Him. And at the same time, we don't settle for the relief of catharsis, but at the same time, we're remembering God's grace in the past and putting it together with our present experience. And this is what takes us to the third part of these two psalms. This is what I know to be true. I remember you not just as my refuge, but I remember your steadfast love. I can see, I can look back and see your continued faithfulness to your promises and your character in the line of my people and the history of your people. I know it in my own life. I can go back to those times when I have tasted that grace, and remembered you as my exceeding joy. But here I am feeling this, and it's as real as real can be to me, but this is what I know to be true about who you are. It's at that point that Spurgeon says, David, he pulls himself together as though he were two men, and he does it this way. He makes his faith reason with his fear. The third thing you see in both of these psalms, in this repetitive pattern, is that at this point, David begins to preach to himself. Last week, we talked about meditation being murmuring to yourself. Now, in this fight for joy, we're going to have to be preaching to ourselves. David is not giving in to the dryness. He's not settling in to this dryness being a foregone conclusion. He's actively pushing it back. He's actively pushing back against the darkness that's overshadowing his soul. And I need you to hear this. If you've heard nothing else in the last 10 minutes, hear this. The most influential preacher in your life is not me. It's not Raymond. It's not Tim. It's not Demetrius. It's not anybody else. It's not who you podcast all week. The most influential preacher in your life is you. You listen to you more than you listen to anyone else. And God created you as an interpreter of the world around you. You do not live by blind fact alone. You live by your interpretation of those facts. So when you find yourself in a situation, in a season where you're asking questions like David, what is God doing? Why is this happening to me? 
when the accusations of those around you, you've talked to them about the love of God, you've talked to them about the faithfulness of God, you've talked to them about the grace of God in Christ, you've called them to repentance and joy in God, and now here you are, feeling abandoned, feeling rejected, feeling like you're drowning, dry in heart and soul, and they say, well, where is this God you've been telling me about? Where is he for you right now? It's in these times that you are going to preach to yourself. And the issue is, what is it that you're preaching? To be a well-rooted, corporate forest of joy to the glory of God, you and I are going to have to be committed to not allowing our own hearts or the hearts of our friends and those that we love to be carried away by whatever wind and wave of emotion comes along. We're going to have to be committed to not allowing our hearts and the hearts of those we love to listen to the voice of accusation. We're going to have to begin to resolve this tension by preaching to ourselves. Lloyd-Jones, again, no one has said it as well. In his book on spiritual depression, he said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? He said, take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is it that's talking to you? You're talking to you. Now, David's treatment was this. Instead of allowing himself to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? His soul has been depressing him, crushing him, bringing him to sorrow. So he stands up and he says, Self, listen for a minute. I'm going to talk to you now. And as he pours himself out to God... As he is remembering God's steadfast love and grace and faithfulness in his life and the lives of his people, David resolves the tension by beginning to take action with his heart. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? That's a rhetorical question. Hope in God, for I shall see, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Three times, all three sections, both psalms, that's the refrain. David begins to preach to himself. And what does he preach? He preaches hope in God. Why? Because David has come to know that true and lasting hope, hope that produces resilient trees in the midst of dryness, Hope that produces leaves that don't wither. Hope that produces fruit in its appointed time is not fed by or rooted in circumstantial or material change. David has come to know that lasting hope that produces these kinds of trees and this kind of joy is not found simply in something in your life changing around you or in you acquiring something you think you need. This kind of hope is found in a person, specifically the person of the triune God. Hope, lasting hope that produces oaks of righteousness, Isaiah says, feeds not on circumstances, but it feeds on and is nourished by the character and the promises of God. I don't know if Psalm 42 and 43 were about this, but one of my favorite stories about David in his life relating to this was a time when he was leading his men to conquer territories of the Philistines. They had encamped in a town called Ziklag. David and his men had made that their base, and they go out, and while they're out conquering a territory in the Philistine country, another group of their enemies come in, and they come to Ziklag. And do you know what they do while David's gone? They take his wives and the wives of all of his men, take his kids, take his flocks and his herds and his animals and burn all their houses. And David and his men are victorious up here and they come back home and they can see the smoke from a distance. And as they get into Ziklag, do you know what happens? 
When they realize what has gone on in their absence, David's generals, David's soldiers, David's confidants, all of David's men, Samuel says, turn around and threaten to stone him. Can you imagine that? Samuel says one thing about the moment. Maybe it's what this psalm was relating to. I don't know. It said that in that moment, David had to encourage himself in the Lord. His hope could not be found in some aspect of his circumstance changing. Abraham, Paul said in Romans 4, had to come to grips with the fact that his body was old and as good as dead. His wife Sarah was not going to be able to have kids. His hope for God's promises was not going to be found in him somehow reverse aging or her somehow getting on some kind of diet that would change her ability to have children. Paul reminds the church in Rome that Abraham's hope, his faith, his confidence was nourished by the character and the promises of God. Hope that produces these kinds of trees, hearts and souls that don't wither in dryness, hearts and souls that can endure those kinds of seasons and on the other side be fruitful to the glory of God in his appointed means, have roots that are nourished in hope, real hope that's found in God alone. And again, on this side of the cross, you and I know of all people that the greatest ground for our hope is in Jesus Christ crucified for our sins, raised triumphantly over death, seated at the right hand of God. And so as you go this week and you begin to read Psalm 42 and 43 for yourself, I want you to hear it and I want you to hear Jesus reading and speaking and being spoken of in this psalm. I want you to hear the one who truly cried out in a type of thirst, a cosmic thirst that you and I know nothing about on the cross, whose enemies mocked him. Where is your God in that day? I want you to hear and I want you to see the one who didn't simply experience feeling abandoned by God, didn't simply feel like he was distant from God, didn't just feel like he was forsaken by God, but one who in your place was forsaken by God on the cross so that by God's grace through faith in him, you would never have to know what it is to be forsaken by him ever. I want you to read 42, 43, and I want you to hear him. You see, in our fight for joy, you and I are going to have to learn how to preach this gospel to ourselves. You're going to have to learn how to encourage yourself in the Lord. So Lloyd-Jones would say, I will wake up in the morning, I will take Romans chapter 8, and I will say, listen, Martin, if God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for you, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? Who is going to bring a charge against you, Martin, as God's elect? It's God who justified you. Who's going to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died for you, Martin. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who's interceding for you. Martin, who's going to separate you from the love of Christ? Friends, to be well-rooted, resilient, joyful, we're going to have to help one another learn what it means to hope in times of dryness. And if we're going to have to be honest with God in it, I want you to understand how honest is God, God is with us through it. It wouldn't be fair of me to not point this out. At the end of Psalm 43, David's still fighting. It would be great if there was just this bow that was tied at the end of 43 and there was some kind of, of language about what it felt like for David to have the waters rush back in, for his soul to be quenched, for the clouds to pass, but they don't. He's still fighting. And I think if, as the psalmist intended, we understand that this was written for our instruction, to instruct our minds in how we think, our hearts in how we feel, if we increasingly delight in God's instruction to us here, 
I think by His grace, He will progressively continue to shape the way we understand life, even in this world, and the way we begin to approach these seasons in life. So much so that by His grace, I think, I really do believe that you and I may become like a tree whose leaves don't wither in these dry seasons, who go through these seasons and times of doubt and discouragement and rather than live withering in the right time, the fruit of God's very spirit present in us will be produced for our joy, for God's glory and the good of those around us. Friends, I want us to be well-rooted oaks of righteousness and joy to the glory of God and the good of those around us. Will you pray with me towards that end? Can we commit ourselves to one another towards that end? This morning, we're going to give you an opportunity to practice preaching the gospel to yourself. And before you panic about what I mean, here's how it's going to look. We're going to take a couple of minutes in just a moment after I pray. And we're going to give you a couple of minutes of silence. And during that time of silence, this is your chance to be honest with God. Some of you may need to be honest with God for the first time and tell him you've been trying to do this on your own. You've been trying to justify yourself before him and you think you've been trying to make yourself good enough to be accepted by him. This morning, you may need to be honest and say, I can't do it. I am throwing my whole self with all I am on who you are for me and your son. Some of you may need to be honest with God about the season that you're in. You try to pretend with him and say what you think he's wanted to hear. What he wants to hear is where you are. That's what he wants. We're going to give you a couple of minutes in silence to respond to God's word, and then we're going to give you a chance to practice preaching the gospel to yourself and preaching the gospel to one another. And we're going to do that by one of the musicians inviting you forward. And for those who have tasted of God's grace, who know of the quenching waters of his grace for your soul through repentance and faith in Jesus, you're going to be invited to come forward and receive communion. You're going to take a piece of bread remembering the body of Jesus broken in your place for your sin. Dip it in a cup remembering his blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And as you do that, Jesus said, you are proclaiming your confidence in him until he comes. You're preaching the gospel to yourself. You're preaching the gospel to everyone around you. So I'm going to pray and we're going to give you a moment to reflect and then we're going to respond together. We'll sing if we have time and we'll be sent out from here by God to be his people in this place. So let me pray and then we'll continue. Father, this morning we ask that as those of us who come forward this morning receive the bread and, and dip it into the cup, we ask that you would do what only you can do by your Holy Spirit and you would make more real to us than ever before what your Son did for us on that cross. For those of us who came in here this morning, feeling like David, experiencing one of these spiritually dry seasons, I would ask, Lord, that by your wisdom and according to your grace, you would make even this remembrance of your steadfast love to us in communion a means by which you begin to let the waters come. The dryness to go, the clouds to push back. We ask this morning, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen us with the courage to continue to help one another fight for joy and hope in you. God, may we be a people who long for you to be our exceeding joy, who desire nothing less than to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we ask these things for his glory and our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.